1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Luke was written so that we would know we have a reliable faith. Up to chapter 16, we have seen the crowds flock to follow Jesus for the miraculous things that he did, and the authority by which he taught of the kingdom of God. But many people of Israel stopped following Jesus when he spoke of his rejection and death. Jesus warned the people to not be like the religious leaders who walked in habitual hypocrisy. The scribes and Pharisees hated Jesus and wanted him dead. They had invited Jesus to a dinner party to trap him into doing work on the Sabbath. Jesus began to teach the people of the party the importance of truly following God, not self-righteous religion true religion is having a relationship with God. Jesus told his disciples to live by God's word alone, not man's tradition. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 16, verse 14.
2: The context of verses 14 through 31 is not just the beginning of chapter 16, but we actually go all the way back to chapter 14, where this massive crowd is following Jesus, and he says to them, he turns all of a sudden, and these are not necessarily his disciples, it's just a crowd. And he turns to them and he says, if any man come to me and doesn't hate his father, mother, sister, brothers, everybody, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple compared to love for me. Whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Heavy words, a cost of discipleship, the seriousness of our commitment to Christ. And what we see, the beautiful thing that we see is that then drew near unto him, chapter 15, one says, all the publicans and sinners to listen to him. Now they're not just following the the crowd, but these group are, they want to learn. They want to know the the Lord better. They want to obey the Lord. They want to follow the Lord. That becomes their chief passion. And in that becoming their chief passion, the religious leaders begin to critique. And so Jesus, he just goes on teaching, and that's what we see in chapter 16. But throughout this, he has to keep addressing the religious leaders because they keep getting snarky and critiquing that he's actually doing this with these sinners. So in chapter 16, verse 14, after Jesus teaches here, we see that the Pharisees, they get snarky again with Jesus. They begin to ridicule and mock him for teaching these sinners. As we go through this, we see Jesus' response brings up to us a very important question, is the Bible important? Throughout history, you'd expect to hear snide comments or ridicule from those who don't follow the Lord when that question is posed, is, is the Bible God's word and is God's word important? While we expect that from someone who's not a believer, unfortunately, the most damaging statements about the importance of the Bible have come from those who claim to follow the Lord. Whether by lifestyle or by actual words, the ignoring of Scripture by believers has had the greatest impact on the world's view of the importance of Scripture. And so it's appropriate to look at Jesus's view, don't you think? What did he think about the importance of Scripture? Was it important to him? As we close out this chapter, we'll find our answer and May our hearts line up with his answer as a result. So chapter 16, verse 14. Jesus just finishes his teaching, calling these guys to make things right, to whatever they were doing wrong before, to not do it again, but to make it right. And it says the response is, verse 14, the Pharisees also which were covetous who were covetous, heard all these things. They also were listening to his teaching and they derided him. Now, why did they deride him? Because it says, who are covetous? The word covetous means lovers of money. These guys loved money, the pursuit of money. They loved luxury. And so when Jesus closes off by saying, you can't serve God and mammon, they're going, oh yes, you can. We do. We do. And we're perfectly spiritual. We're the most spiritual people out there. And so they begin to deride him. It's a very strong word. It means to turn up the nose, to ridicule by looking down at someone or sneering at them. I don't know if they actually defended their lavish lifestyle or their pursuit of riches, or if they just simply said Jesus didn't make any sense with his silly stories about stewards who robbed their master. We don't know exactly how they mocked Jesus. But from Jesus's response, we do know that they were trying to deflect what Jesus taught by emphasizing their superior spirituality. Because Jesus says to them, you are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. Wow. I mean, that's a heavy response. They begin to mock Jesus and look down on him. Not silly teachings. This guy doesn't understand anything. Jesus says, you know, you, you are they which justify yourselves, declare yourselves to be righteous to other men. But God knows what's really going on in here. Isn't that what matters most? What God thinks about us? They could declare themselves righteous to other people as much as they want. What about God? What did He think? Did He declare them righteous? Jesus says since God knew their hearts that they loved money and the applause of people, not more than obeying God, He wouldn't declare them as righteous. For he says, that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. That which is highly esteemed means that which is very valuable. That which is very valuable to men is abomination. That which is detestable and abhorrent. That which turns your stomach. That which is disgusting in the sight of God. See, God knew who they really were and what they really valued. It's interesting because culture will value certain things, different things at different periods, different cultures, different time periods will value certain things. These days you tend to value, if you're looking at feminine beauty, it tends to be the perfect figure is, it tends to be more the skinny kind of some sorts. But if you look at the sculptures and the statues back in the day, it was nice to have a lot to love. That's just how you look at them. That's what it was. So culture changes. What they seem to value, it changes over time. But the idea is that whatever the culture holds to be very valuable, if it doesn't line up with what God says is very valuable, then it disgusts him. There are many things that both the church, the church seems to be obsessed with success, seems to see be obsessed with prosperity. Even if you don't believe that name it, claim it gospel, it still seems to be obsessed with that idea. The world, of course, loves to not just say certain things are okay, but to celebrate and promote things that are disgusting. They don't stop turning God's stomach because all of a sudden the culture says, well, we're not bothered by it anymore. Not at all. So God knew who they really were and what they really valued. Their love of money disgusted God, especially when you consider their lack of love for these sinners. Here they are sneering at Jesus and these guys are just trying to learn about God. They just want to follow the Lord. They want to obey the Lord. So Jesus has given them the goods and that sneering, that arrogance, when in their hearts they loved money and not God, they loved money and not God's word, that disgusted God. But here's the kicker. That culture in that day wasn't disgusted by them. That culture in that day, they looked up to these people. They looked up to the Pharisees and their wealth and their influence and their success. They thought all those things were blessings from God and proved, therefore, that they were more spiritual than everyone else. That they loved God more than everyone else. So everyone wanted to be like them. That's why Jesus called this generation a wicked generation. The Pharisees' desire for men's applause kept them from repentance, which would bring God's applause, which then in turn means everyone else, they couldn't know the truth. They couldn't come to repentance either because they're trying to follow the example of those who aren't right with God. The truth is none of them were righteous and they all needed to repent. And in the first 13 verses of this chapter, that's what Jesus is doing. He's teaching these new believers what repentance looked like and how they should live from now on, how they were to turn around and live a different life. But since the religious leaders didn't see their need to repent, since these Pharisees thought that they were spiritual and Jesus didn't make any sense, they looked down at him. They mocked him. And so Jesus responds by exposing the truth. They're a bunch of frauds. They're a bunch of frauds. Why were they frauds? Because they did not value what God said, his word, as important in their lives. Before we move into that, the main teaching here, I do need to ask you a question because God certainly knows not just who they really were, He knows who I really am, and He knows what I really value. So, why would you place such emphasis on what other people think about you when God knows the truth? This is a dangerous kind of deception because it's self deception. And you can't talk to somebody who's deceived themselves. You can't reason with somebody like that because they've already tricked themselves. And the dangerous thing is when you're self-deceived, it keeps you from repentance, keeps you going right down the same road without any clue to the danger you're facing. And so I ask you this morning, is your chief concern looking spiritual in front of others or is it conforming yourself to God's way of thinking and God's way of living? That needs to be our chief desire this morning. Otherwise, everything I'm about to say won't help. Again, I ask the question, why did Jesus say this to them? Because they were an abomination in the sight of God because they did not have zeal for the right things. They were zealous. They were passionate for something. But it was building their own kingdom here on earth. It was not building God's kingdom. And so in verse 16, Jesus says, listen, the law and the prophets, they were until John. And since that time or from that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. And every man presses into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. John here refers to John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. By saying this, that from all the way in the beginning, all the way till John, Jesus is confirming the authority of the Old Testament. There are those in the church today who do not believe the Old Testament is authoritative or they may even give the more palatable answer, but it's the same thing, that teaching the Old Testament doesn't do your congregation any good. Jesus here explains the law and the prophets there until John, man. And from that time, they preached what? God's kingdom. God's kingdom. That sounds like a pretty good topic, doesn't it? You won't hear that from a lot of people. Oh, the Old Testament is full of things that confuse people and they don't understand. Your congregation, they won't get it, it's bad for them. You should never do that. You should just teach the New Testament. If that's true, then why did Jesus tell it that from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Malachi and then John's preaching that it gives the good news of the kingdom of God? The good news of the kingdom of God. Don't you think God wants us to hear the good news of his kingdom? The good news of God's coming kingdom, which will fix our world, has been promised since Genesis. From the time in Genesis 3, where the Lord promised Eve, he said, your seed, hey, the serpent, he's going to bite his heel, but he's going to crush the serpent's head. I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. And the whole Old Testament speaks those truths. It's the consistent theme. And here's the key at the end. And every man presses into it. The word there, presses, is a, that whole end of the phrase there may be sound confusing. You might even have a modern translation that says, does violence to it. The the reason they translate it that way is because the word presses there, it means to use violence or force to accomplish a task. Certainly, there are many who have tried to force their version of a perfect world upon others through violence. Certainly, that has been true. And we as Christians are never to use violence to advance God's kingdom. Certainly, it doesn't speak of physical violence here or physical force. The nature of the word here, it refers to the fact that we are to use our internal force, our dedication to the task of building God's kingdom. The idea that we're to be committed to it, we're to be dedicated to it. That's to be our passion and our goal, just like all the other believers who've gone before us, right? You know, it says, since we are surrounded, in Hebrews 12, I think, verse one, where it says that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, right? They've already done this. They've, they've been committed to it. They've been passionate about building God's kingdom. We're to be doing that as well, not to be passionate about building a kingdom of our own here. We're to be dedicated to God's principles for living so so much that nothing else rivals that commitment, amen? That's what these sinners and publicans were doing when they decided to follow Jesus. They're now pressing in, coming close to the Lord to learn. But what are the Pharisees doing? Staying outside, scoffing. They're pressing in, but these guys are staying outside. And that's what Jesus is saying. He goes, from the very beginning, those who really loved God, those who were really spiritual, those who were true, they were pressing in. You guys, you're you're hanging out. You're standing out, remaining outside. And which one are you and I like? Do you and I critique Jesus's radical commands or explain how they don't apply to us? Do we try to find workarounds for them or do we embrace God's commands? These guys claim to value God's word, but they ignored much of it to pursue their own idea of righteousness. But see, God's word never changes, right? it never changes. It's always to be our standard of truth. And that's what Jesus says here in verse 17. He says, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. The word easier there means something that's no trouble at all. Compared to God's word failing, I'll explain that in a minute, all right? Compared to that, it's no trouble at all for our world to cease to exist. Now, let me ask you a question. How hard is it for our universe to seek to exist? Well, since God's own power would need to fail, then I think it's impossible, don't you? Hebrews 1.3 says he holds all things together by the word of his power. So if he's holding it together, then the only way this universe can poof is if he fails, right? Or one other situation, which I'll get to in a minute. But that's the only way. So if it's an easy task for the impossible to happen, then how much more serious do you think it will be that God would never violate his word? that he would never change his word or alter it, that it would always hold its post and position of authority in our lives. It says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle. That's the small symbol that helps differentiate certain letters in the Hebrew alphabet. One translator said the smallest stroke of the pen of Scripture. It would be comparatively an easy thing for this earth, this universe to just kind of go poof without God knowing it. Then for God's, and even the smallest mark of God's word, to cease to hold its post or position in our life. That's what the word fail means. To cease to hold its post or position in our lives. It's a word that refers to a guard not doing his job. The only other way that the earth would cease is if God commanded it to, and he will do that someday. In Second Peter 3, verses five through seven, it tells us that those who scoff at God are ignorant of this important truth. He says that, for they willingly are ignorant of this that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Everything God created was by his word. In Second Peter 3, 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. God flooded what he made, drowned everything that he made, except for Noah and those in the ark and, of course, the water creatures. But then it says here in verse 7, the heavens and the earth, which exist now, that existed after the flood, they are by that same word kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Someday God will by his command, not because he just lets it slip, but by his command, he will destroy this universe and he'll create a new heavens and a new earth, but it can't randomly happen. What's the point? The point is this. Jesus is saying God will destroy his creation when it suits his purposes. And he moves slowly toward that action and only when it's the necessary judgment. But he will do it. Something as crazy and as impossible as that, he will do. But something God will never do is he will never undo his word. Never. We read in Psalm 138 in our scripture reading and in verse two it says that he magnifies his word above his own name. That's what David said. He says, in Psalm 138, too, I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. I'm gonna praise your name because of your great love for me and your truth, your word. Why? Because you have magnified your word above all your name. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? God's name is his character, his reputation, who he is, what he does. And God says that he's magnified his word above that. Certainly, God's reputation's never gonna take a hit But the point here is that God operates in accordance with his word at all times. He will never operate outside of his word. So that means his word, the Bible, it is a reliable source of who he is, what he's like, what is right, and what is wrong. It's a reliable source. You and I never need to pray or seek God for, you know, a higher answer than his word. Like you don't ever have to go, Lord, the money's tight. I'm not sure what we do. We should do here as a family. Will you give me wisdom about whether I should cheat and rob my boss or not? You never have to pray that prayer. Guarantee you. You don't have to pray that prayer because his word gives us clear instruction on how we're to conduct ourselves in that realm, Right? So you don't have to pray that prayer. But here's the kicker. I know I made a silly example, but that's exactly what the religious leaders did. That's exactly what these guys did. Turn to Mark chapter seven with me. Jesus actually says this particular thing many times to them, but I'm picking this one because I think it encapsulates things fairly clearly. Now, context here a little bit. This whole discussion comes up because in Mark chapter seven, the disciples are out in the marketplace doing everyday business they come to this dinner or feast somewhere and there are religious leaders present. And they notice that they don't go through all the washing rituals that the religious leaders and rabbis said you had to go through to be ritually pure to eat. It wasn't that the disciples didn't come home and scrub their hands or anything like that. That's not the point. The point is they didn't go through all the rituals that the religious leaders and rabbis said you had to do before you ate. And so they come to Jesus in verse five Mark chapter seven, verse five. It says, then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Now, by their own admission, they don't state it's scripture. They state, why don't they regard our traditions? And look at Jesus' answer. He answered and said unto them, well, or correctly, or rightly, has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites? That's a nice way to start a conversation. But he sees it over and over again as it is written. And now he quotes what Isaiah said, this people he's referring to God's people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. How be it in vain in a worthless way. They do worship me. Why? Because they teach for doctrines. They teach as my word, they teach as what's true, the commandments of men. They teach their commandments, not God's commandments. Well, how is that true? Why is Isaiah right? And why is Isaiah talking about these guys? Verse eight, for laying aside, discarding God's commands, you hold, cling to the traditions of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things. That's what you do. That's why you're hypocrites. And he said unto them, full well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. Now he gives another example. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whosoever curses father and mother, let him die the death. But you say, even though God clearly says that, you say, well, if a man shall say to his father and mother, it is korban. And the word korban means to say, it's a gift, or this is for your good. By whatsoever you might be profited by him, me, he shall be free. And then you suffer him no more to do anything for his father or his mother. In other words, if, if a couple got older and it was the job of the younger to take care of them, their children to take care of them, if the children didn't want to do it, all they had to come and say, you know, Mom and Dad, we know the law says we should take care of you, but this is for your good. You need to be out on your own still. So we're not going to. And the Pharisees would go, you know, you came and you complained to them and said, listen, you need to talk to my son. He's not honoring the scripture and we don't know what we're going to do and he needs to, you know, do this because God's word says so. They'd go, well, did he say it was for your good? Well, yeah sorry. I mean, if it's for your good, then he doesn't have to honor you. Do you see what they did there? A workaround so they don't have to obey God. And that's what Jesus says here in verse 13. In doing this, you make the word of God of no effect. It's as if God never said it. Through your tradition, which you have delivered, And then Jesus says, and many such like things you do. This was just two examples of where they had many workarounds that caused them to disobey God's word, but be totally righteous, be totally fine in their culture and in their society. They did do that. I know it was a silly example I gave, but that's what these guys were doing. And that's why Jesus upset these guys so much. Because he called them to repent from the things they found workarounds for. That's a good question for us. Are you and I guilty of creating our own workarounds to God's word? Or is God's word our final authority? We see this next verse here, and it almost looks like it's completely out of place. Whosoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whosoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. Like, doesn't it seem like Luke is just kind of writing and he's going, oh yeah, Jesus said this too. I'm going to throw it right here. It does at first when you read it but it makes perfect sense to have this here because one of the obvious areas they developed a workaround of God's word was marriage. Marriage was something God established way back in Genesis. And when you see that there, the ideal is set. A man leaves his father and mother, cleaves to his wife. The idea cleave means to be permanently glued together. And that's the idea. One man, one woman for life. That was, that's God's design for marriage. In their day, they had rabbis that taught that if your wife burned your dinner, you could divorce her and marry somebody else. I mean, literally, it just meant if, if she did anything that displeased you, you could divorce her and marry somebody else. The idea here is that Jesus now uses this topic to illustrate how God's word never changes despite their workarounds, despite their current practice. And so he just states it here. Whosoever, which means everybody, this command applies to everyone. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, it's, it's just how it is. Whosoever puts away his wife, or the, that's the, put away is the word for divorce. It means to send away or dismiss. Whosoever dismisses his wife and then marries another commits adultery. And whosoever marries her that's divorced from her husband also commits adultery. Now, Jesus doesn't address the scenario of a woman divorcing her husband because that wasn't possible in Jewish culture. They didn't have that legal right. So certainly in a culture that does allow a woman to do that, it applies here as well. So what in the world is he saying here? Well, the idea here, adultery, it's a, it's a very specific word in the, in the New Testament, moikia, and it means to be unfaithful to your spouse. It means being unfaithful to your vows. It could be abandoning your spouse. It could be obviously sexual infidelity, you know, of some sort. All those things are that idea of adultery is found here is what that word refers to. And so when Jesus says, when you divorce your wife and you marry someone else, you are being unfaithful to your spouse. I said something first service that was incorrect. I said that single people can't commit adultery. And of course, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, whosoever, which would include single people, looks upon someone in their heart with lust in their heart, commits adultery. So I need to correct that this service. But the idea is that adultery can only occur within the concept of marriage. The idea is if you're a single person and you're lusting for someone, you don't know if they're going to be your spouse, and you're being unfaithful because you're to save yourself for that person you're going to marry, right? And in the same way, if you are now married and you are lusting after someone else, you're being unfaithful to the spouse that you now have. Well, Jesus here in saying this is saying, even if you've divorced that spouse... you go and you get married to someone else, you're being unfaithful to that spouse.
1: This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today.